Good morning. Thank you for being here today. All right. Did anybody give up anything for Lent this season? It's really awesome to be able to uh, fast and, you know, be dependent on Jesus. I'm going to start tomorrow. Um, All right. So I just want to say a quick prayer of gratitude. God, I thank you for allowing me to be here today. That you have transformed the wreckage of my past that you have given me a message of hope. God, I pray that you would uh, bind the forces of darkness that would try to distract us today. God, I pray that I would only speak truth. (laughs) God, that you would seal my tongue if I speak contrary to your word or I dishonor you. God, open our hearts and let us receive your admonition today. In your name, amen. All right, um, Mark chapter 14. We're going to start with verse number one. It was two days before the Passover and the festival unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, a pure nard. She broke the jar and she poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you and you can do what is good for them whenever you want but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed and the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad And they promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. 2020 has been the greatest year of my life. In January, I was only four months into a new job as a server. I had left a job that I hated to do something that I loved. January is traditionally the start of the slow season for business. Money becomes sparse. Uh, But we as servers only have to make it a few months uh, before the cash flow starts coming in again. I began seriously training for strongman, and although I struggled to show up consistently and on time for both my job and the gym, I began to change. At the same time, my friend and I started a recovery meeting for crystal meth addicts here in Bloomington. We met in my home every week. Everywhere in my life, I felt like I was finally on the verge of greatness. On my birthday in March, four of us from Faith Lutheran headed to Orlando, Florida to experience the Exponential Church Planting Conference. It was a big deal for me. This was my first time in Florida, and the first time I really got to feel like I could enjoy my birthday. My ex-boyfriend that used to abuse me had the same birthday as me. So the fact that the trauma and the abuse didn't haunt me, it it was incredible. 
I got to see my pastor in a whole new light as he raised go-karts and he uh, went on roller coaster rides. It had been years since I had had an intimate connection with my pastor. And during this trip, I finally found one that could be not just my, my shepherd, but my co-laborer and friend. <laughs> well, at the conference, I was given another piece of clarity in my dream of becoming a missionary. I had been praying and studying for several years, but I felt like it was here that God gave me uh, that missing piece to help me finally reach my lifelong goal. I connected with people from all over the world. It was an infectious environment of expectancy and worship. I was waiting on God. And he moved my heart and my mind during one of these lectures. I watched people of color standing and cheering in worship on the front row as a pastor proclaimed how God was blessing people of color with freedoms they have never known. The disciples judged Mary in Mark 14.4 when she came to anoint Jesus in worship. They could not understand the lavish, lavish worship and thought it was a waste. I was put off and I was irritated by the worship that I was witnessing in front of me. God convicted me. He exposed the bigotry and the hatred I harbored in my heart against people of color. After the lecture, I approached one of the men that I had judged harshly as I watched him praise God. I told him of my sin, how I was full of prejudice and hatred. He wrapped me in his arms and my body shook as I spilled my tears onto his shoulder. He prayed with me and over, over me. My shame began to fall away as I felt his warmth and intense grace. He praised God because of my brokenness. He was excited for me, not angry. I had just confessed that I hated him like the priests and the scribes hated Jesus in Mark 14, 1 because of the color of his skin. He had the mantle and authority and an anointing from God, but I hated him. But like Jesus, he forgave me. And I, like Mary, when she came before Jesus in verse 3, acknowledged the greatness of this man and his divine purpose. I needed his help to be reconciled. I brought the wreckage of myself and I repented. Later in the conference, people gathered around the main stage with oil to anoint those who felt that they were called uh, to plant churches. So, of course, I went forward and, because I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was willing to pay the cost, that I was willing to show up and embrace the purpose in my life as a minister of reconciliation. The man who stood before me asked me about my plans for ministry. I told him that I was re returning to Bloomington, Illinois to plant a house church. He became excited and tearful because of the thousands of people that were there. I had come to receive a blessing from a Bloomington Normal native who now served in San Diego, California as a missionary. He anointed my head with oil. 
acknowledging my mission and purpose before God. He prayed for the people from his hometown that I was going to serve. He cried out to God, his heart heavy for his home, and commissioned me as an anointed one tasked with purpose. I returned home, and I was so excited to see how God would move and how he would show up in my life. A week later, after the highest of highs that I have ever experienced, life came to a halt. Restaurants shut down. Recovery meetings stopped coming together in person, and people were afraid to worship together. COVID-19 changed everything that we thought was important. As an addict, I am completely dependent on the fellowship, both here in the church and the recovery meetings that I go to outside of here in order to stay clean. The opposite of addiction is not abstinence, it's connection. My life depended on other people, and without it, I was risking death. But very few of my friends were willing to go outside. And I felt cut off from all of these sources of love and the hope that encouraged me to keep going. Our ragtag group of friends began meeting weekly for board games because we needed each other to stay alive. We were young. Most of us didn't have families nearby, and staying connected was our only chance at survival. I was hurt, and I was so confused when I looked around me at all the Christians who were hiding in their homes while my people were dying. Suicide and overdose were taking out the people that I loved. Where were the people that were called to serve them? Yes, safety made sense. But I think of Jesus and the lepers that he loved so much, like in Simon in Mark 14, verse 3. Then I consider all the martyrs that have died for the church. After two millennia of resilience against persecution, how did the church retreat so quickly? (laughs) I made the choice to keep my door open no matter what. I cried out to God that if I were to die or to be arrested, that I would honor what I felt was my call to a radical obedience to this mission. I have often wondered if I would be courageous enough to be imprisoned or die for Christ, and now seems like the time. I didn't know if I was making the right choice, but I took what little information that I had, and I trusted God to sustain me. Months after the college students still had not come back and the restaurants never filled with people, I was broke. I was unable to pay my bills. I held on for as long as I could. I wanted to be responsible, but I applied for unemployment because there was no way I was going to make it on my own. I threw myself into training at the gym and prepared for my first competition. We were warriors, both brave and relentless. I celebrated four years clean from drugs and alcohol and headed to Florida for a second time that year. I finally got to get in the ocean. I relished both the trip and the competition. I had pushed my body harder and further than I ever thought possible. 
I didn't place, but in my mind, I was a champion on top of the world. I didn't know at the time that post-competition depression is a real thing. I was so high and elated that when I came back, I had nothing. All of my energy, all of my intentions were spent. I quickly slipped into misery when we returned to Illinois. I was so lonely, and I felt so lost. Each Sunday, I came here to Faith Lutheran, and I had no interest in passing the peace. Because for me, the separation was deafening. I didn't want to wave at you. I wanted to hug you. I wanted to feel your love, and I wanted to hug you back to let you know that I love you too. I don't know how to do that when I wave. There were few Christians in my day-to-day life, but I was blessed. And I was humbled to witness a new believer at my job not only minister to me, but begin pouring into the people around him. He was on fire for God, and the fire was a kindling to my hope. But in my private life, I was wrestling with my sexual identity, and I felt so confused and alone as I struggled to be obedient. Financial chaos consumed me as the unemployment ran out, and I was no longer able to pay rent. Things became ever more depressing at work as we wondered each day if tomorrow would we still have jobs? I started meeting with a small group here at Faith Lutheran. It really reminds me of Jesus here in Mark chapter 14 at the feast, relaxing and enjoying the company. I mean, this man knows and is preparing to die, and yet he found comfort around a table of his friends. So the members of this small group gave me the courage to keep fighting and keep serving the hurting community that I was a part of. They gave me a place to land long enough to catch my breath just before I could start fighting again. Depressed, ashamed of my behavior, and so full of hurt, I began fantasizing about methamphetamines because I was so desperate for connection. While crying out to God, I asked him, what am I supposed to do? Who's going to step in and do something? In an audible response to my prayer, he told me, I told you what to do. I argued with him because I knew that there was no way that I was ready to plant a church. He agreed, uh, but he encouraged me to do it anyway. He told me that he would break me with his power, that he would bring me and my pride into subjection, and that he would never leave me. He knew that I needed him, and he would fulfill his purpose in me, even if it meant destroying everything. So I stepped out in faith once again, and I opened my doors, inviting the hurting and the lonely to come, eat, and worship. So the Jesus that I grew up was was pristine, prissy, and frankly, he was a wuss. But the Jesus I see in Isaiah, he's a dangerous warrior covered in the blood of his enemies that he has killed. The Jesus that I see here in the gospel, he's a rule breaker. He's snarky, he has a quick-witted tongue, He cussed publicly and ran with people that were loud and rambunctious. That's my kind of savior. The bulk of his ministry was done in streets and in homes, not in the synagogues. 
God used these house church meetings to show me that I'm very much like the disciples in this portion of Mark. They're blinded to the truth of who Jesus really is and what he is really doing. But he also showed me that I'm like himself. And that was encouraging because he was irritated at times. He was willing to face the darkness of humanity and step into it to find the hurting and the lonely. In September, the congregants of Faith Lutheran came alongside me and recognized my calling and ordained me as a deacon minister. The world saw me as a junkie, a dropout, a queer, and a burnout. (laughs) But here, among all of you, I came with my gifts and the past that most of you couldn't understand. I felt like Mary who washed the feet of Jesus with her tears. I could not fathom the love and the appreciation that I was shown. Slowly but surely, Harvard Chapel began to attract those who hated Jesus and were too afraid to enter a church. They didn't come to worship. They came to eat with us, but they heard the word of God being read aloud. This was encouraging, but chaos consumed me as I struggled to keep the faith. I literally had strangers knocking on my door week after week, offering me sex and drugs. I knew that this battle was spiritual, that my enemy was plotting against me, but I struggled to keep my eyes on my Savior. And as I fell further, farther and farther behind in rent, it just seemed hopeless. I was living in ever-increasing debt, and there wasn't enough food that I could eat to smother my feelings, but I tried. I wrestled with God and I turned to sin to cope with my pain. The mantle of leadership that I had accepted seemed way too heavy to bear. Restaurants closed again, and all I had left was this dimming sliver of hope that my God would show up and set things right. (laughs) Two men decided to fight alongside me as I faced my obsessive and compulsive spending habits. I let them see how I spent my money. I let them see my fears, my hopes for the future, and the insanity that kept me from becoming an efficient leader. I was completely unable to provide for myself, and I decided to leave the culinary industry that I had been a part of for over half my life. It was the only work I knew how to do. What other skills do I have? It was terrifying. I knew that Jesus did not come to make me prosper financially. He promises it's going to be miserable. But he came to bring my sickness to the depths of hell, to conquer my rebellion, and to take my iniquities to the grave in order to give me a brand new life. These men that loved me, they brought me to the foot of the cross, and Jesus brought me the rest of the way through a transforming of my mind. I found the courage to apply for a job as a residential counselor in a substance abuse treatment facility. And I began working with addicts, um, searching for a new way of life. They were people just like me who either had or were on the brink of losing everything because of their drug addiction. My whole life changed, but it wasn't just like financially. Busyness became like the defining aspect of my new life. 
I struggle to keep up with the requirements of Harvard Chapel and my personal study and my worship declined. Working so much, I felt like I didn't have time to pray. My life got messier and I needed grace more than ever to simply survive in this whirlwind of adjustment. My perception of needing to obtain a well-organized life quickly vanished and I became real and authentic. I began to embrace my messiness and the identity of righteousness. From the outside, my life was a wreck, but I have never felt more real, more alive, and more authentic in my walk with God. The box that I had put him in was destroyed. And God used this period of exponential growth to show me that, yeah, good deeds were a good thing, but I was missing the Messiah who was right in front of me, who followed God to the point of death. If you have your Bible today, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. An old pastor of mine said, always bring your Bible so you can tell if I'm lying. All right. Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 1. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. He is the source and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of God. For consider him, who endured with such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. In struggling against sin, folks, I need you to hear this. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I know I certainly haven't. And you have not, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly. Or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons, for what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruits of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. As I come to pour my praise on Jesus like oil from Mary's alabaster box, I want to challenge you like he challenged the disciples. You don't know the horrors that I have lived. You don't know the disgusting sins that I have committed or the number of people that I have harmed. You can't possibly comprehend what Jesus rescued me from or the wrath of God that Jesus took upon himself in order to set me free and give me a new life. And yet you, you loved me. You accepted me even when you weren't always quite sure what to do with me. 
<laughs> you made me one of your own. So I ask you today, to whom have you not given the same level of love and acceptance? Are you willing to invite your Judas to the table in order to love them? Are you willing to serve them even though they will betray you? I ask you today, what sin do you need to be rescued from? What is so dark and wicked in your life that Jesus was willing to die and claim it as his own? I challenge you today because you are his anointed. Each and every one of you are trusted to carry the good news of redemption and reconciliation of God. It is you that he calls the saints. And he has given the priesthood to all of you as believers. You are the emissaries of God. You are the vessels specifically chosen and sculpted to carry the message of hope. You might think that you're not good enough. But he doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Is the faith that you have something that you are willing to die for? I want you to look at the people next to you. Think of how much you love them. Are you willing to risk losing the ones you love in order to be obedient to the king? Are you willing to give up your life of comfort for the one who was tortured for you? Do you actually believe that he has the power to conquer death, to enslave your sin, and bring you back to life? If he has the power to defeat death, Surely you can trust him with your insecurities. He can use you to instruct and build up the saints. He is enough, because quite frankly, we never will be. Come today and worship him and recognize the Messiah who took us with him into death and reigns as king in our resurrection. I'll close with Romans chapter 5. Verses 6 through 11. I'll start in verse 5. This hope will not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless... At the right time, not a moment too soon, not a moment after, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone will choose to die. But God proves his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, he says, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. How much more then? Since we have been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Please join me in prayer. God, I thank you for allowing me the opportunity to confess not only your gospel, but my sin before my brothers and sisters. 
God, I pray that you would encourage us to be transparent here today. God, that when someone asks us how that we are, that we do not lie to them and say that we're good, that we're fine, that it's okay. God, that we would be honest with our hurts, with our hangups, with our habits. God, I pray that you as our deliverer of oppression, that you would become so real to us. That like the, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees and the disciples even, that we would not miss who you are. That we would recognize the anointed Messiah who chose to die for us, not because we were worth it, because he wanted to. God, I pray that you would bless us. Thank you. In your son's holy name, amen.